So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the book of the Revelation, starting in the seventh chapter, the ninth verse, and reading through to the twelfth. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. May the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Heavenly Father, we look at these words and we know that it was a vision. We know that John is seeing things in, oh, such a a symbolic way in some senses and not in others. But we know that what we are looking at is our ultimate destination. We know that you have a purpose. We know that throughout all of history, you have been leading and guiding towards an end. And we see here in this book, Lord, our end, the the foreverness, the not yetness, the, the place that we will be and what we will be doing. And Lord, we just give you the glory for that. We ask that you would make it real to us this morning, that we would truly understand what it means to be a child of the kingdom the kingdom of holiness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, at last, after several weeks, uh, actually over a month now, I think, we're going to come to the culmination of this sort of mini-series that I've been teaching after we finished up with John. And before we start Luke, uh, actually next week, Lord willing, um, we've been talking about the holiness of God, and, and we're going to bring that to its ultimate end uh, this morning, just for this segment. It's not that we're not going to talk about the holiness of God anymore, but just in this sort of mini-series, this is sort of the culmination of that. And, and, and what we're going to do this morning is step back a wee bit, and we're going to take a look at this, and we're going to ask and answer some of the great questions of theology and philosophy, like who am I and why am I here and why did God make me and what's the chief end of man and all of those great questions. Now, of course, we're not going to deal with them in any detail, but I think we'll get to the conclusion that we want to get nonetheless. Now, important to what we're going to talk about today is the definition of what it means to be a kingdom. We're going to talk about a kingdom. So I want to start right off the bat by defining what it means to be a kingdom. Not a new concept for you, but a new concept for our study of the holiness of God. Now, a kingdom is nothing more than just a a form or a structure that is used for people in relationships relationships with each other, social relationships or a governance relationship. And basically a kingdom usually consists of three parts. There is of course a king and the king is sovereign and rules over the kingdom. Then there are subjects who are obedient and subservient to that rule. And then thirdly, there's a domain or a realm. 
uh, a realm over which the king rules and in which the subjects live. Now, that's the basic aspects of what a kingdom is and what it is supposed to be. Now, I'm going to make a a statement that might sound a little harsh to our sensitive, democratic, and libertarian ears. And that is that far and away, I mean, not even close, the best form of governance, the best form of relationships between people is a kingdom. Now, before you start throwing things at me, let me say that I, I recognize that in most kingdoms, we are subject to the fallenness of the king who rules that kingdom. And so, therefore, almost always power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, you get a tyranny or a despot that takes advantage of his situation. And in fact, in reality, there is no example of the kind of kingdom that I'm talking about that is the best rule. But imagine if you you will, a kingdom where the king, rather than looking after his own self-interest, is completely dedicated to the interest of his subjects, and he gives himself for them, and loves them, and cares for them, and protects them. And imagine also that there are subjects who love that relationship, are completely comfortable with being obedient and subservient to that king, and love him entirely and love the relationship between them. And then imagine that the realm or the dominion over which that king rules and in which those subjects lives is a place where there is no pain, there is no sorrow, there is no anger, no hate, no murder, no anything, and of course, no death. Well, if you put all those together, what I have done is I have described the kingdom of holiness, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And I'm going to use those three terms interchangeably this morning. And that's going to be our subject. That is the chief end of the plan of redemption. It's the chief end of this mini-series that we have been talking about. The kingdom of holiness and how we are in the process of being taken there. Now, what's very interesting about the kingdom of heaven that is different than an earthly kingdom is this. The kingdom of heaven is in one sense just what it says. The kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom that is in heaven. But also in another sense, the kingdom is here on earth. Now, there is a sense in which the kingdom is not realized yet, the not yet of the kingdom. And then there's another sense in which the kingdom exists in the here and now. So there's a tension all through scripture between the here and now, the not yet, between the kingdom of heaven that's in heaven and we which we will ultimately go to, and the kingdom of heaven as it exists right now. So I'm going to try to unravel that a little bit um, this morning. Now, over this last couple of weeks, I have introduced some concepts, and I wish I had time this morning to go through and redefine all these concepts, but I don't. But let me at least list some of the things when we have been pursuing the holiness of God that we have discussed. We have talked about his eternal decree from all eternity past where God ordains all that is and all that will be. 
We've also talked about his sovereignty, the absolute sovereignty of God over his kingdom. No one tells God what to do and no circumstance affects him in what he does. We've also talked about his providence and how it is the outworking of his eternal decree and his sovereignty in his creation and through his creation and how he takes care of and provides and directs the, 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 the direction of those people. We've also talked about his covenantal nature going all the way back to Abraham mainly and then tracing it through as far as what the purpose of those covenants and how God fulfills those covenants. But in particular, especially over the last couple of weeks, we have talked very much about the transcendence of God, the fact that he is set apart from his creation, holy and unapproachable and actually unknowable unless he reveals himself to us. But at the same time, we have talked about his eminence, the fact that he loves to be in the midst of his people and he wants relationship with us. Now, we've also introduced a whole bevy of principles over the last couple of weeks. And if you aren't here, all of this is online. And also the notes of this and the outlines are online on our website. But I don't have time again this morning to go into all the principles. But let me at least remind you of two of them that will be very important to this morning's discussion. The one that keeps cropping up over and over again will also be important today. And that is that the eminence of God, the fact that he loves to be in the midst of his people in many different ways, in no way diminishes his transcendence. It doesn't diminish his holiness. He remains holy even though he loves to be in the midst of us. Now, the second principle we actually just introduced on Christmas Eve a couple of nights ago when we talked about it requires only a holy God can redeem that which is unholy to holiness. And we're talking about the fall and the redemption of Christ. Only a holy God can redeem that which is unholy and return it to holiness again. That's what we're going to talk about also this morning. Now, the history, I'm also going to have to kind of breeze over because we've been looking at the history of the children of Israel and starting with uh, Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then uh, Joseph and his uh, moving to Egypt and how they ended up there and then 400 years of slavery and Moses the deliverer sent to redeem them and then ultimately bringing them through the Red Sea to the destination. Now, of that story, we have a destination. The destination was indeed to gather at the base of Mount Horeb, also Mount Sinai, and to worship God. God came down upon that mountain in power and glory, and the first gathering of the kahal, or the assembly of God's people, gathered at the base of that mountain, and they worshiped him. And what we did is we actually went back and we looked at all the places where that was the That was the purpose. That's why God says, let my people go so they can worship me. Well, we talked about that story as being a type, actually being an Old Testament shadow 
of what our text talks about this morning. It it, it is now, we don't doubt the historicity of it. We know that it all happened. However, it is a picture, a shadow of the reality of our eternity, those who know Jesus Christ, because that's what we're going to do. And that also is the end purpose, the end product of all of redemptive history that we would stand before the throne of God, worshiping him and bringing him glory. Now, the way that that is going to come about, if you will, this morning, just to a degree, is through the idea of a kingdom. And that's the reason I want to establish some of the basics of the kingdom, because that is a picture of the kingdom of holiness or the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we talk about a kingdom, at least scripture-wise... It's a good idea to go back to where it began, or at least the Old Testament type or shadow of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about the kingdom, how it originated in its roots, then we're going to talk about how it came in Jesus Christ, and then we're going to talk about it, what it's going to be in the future. And this is the destination, folks, of the redemptive plan, the providence of God. Well, the, the kingdom of, of heaven is sort of fashioned after, not fashioned after, I'm sorry, that's sort of dead wrong. The, the Old Testament is a shadow, a reflection of the reality of the kingdom of heaven. And it all starts rather poorly because God was the king of, of, the, of the children of Israel and God is ultimately the king of his kingdom. But the people wanted another king. They wanted a king like the people around them had, and so they clamored for Samuel to provide them a king, and God said, okay, give them what they want. You're not going to like it. You know, your king's going to take things from you and take your kids and form armies, and it's exactly what happened with Saul. Saul started out okay, but he ended up to be both insane and committed suicide. But then God showed that he is really good at taking our failures and making them into successes because he raised up David. David is a type of the king of Christ. He's an Old Testament shadow of the true king, the king of kings. And so God raised up David and there was a kingdom, but that kingdom and everything about David's kingdom points us forward to the kingdom of Christ. In other words, when we read things like Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, that's talking about Jesus. That's talking about the cornerstone of the foundation of the kingdom of heaven that is going to be built here on earth. Or is it Psalm 2, also a messianic psalm. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, talking about the seeds or the foundations of the kingdom of heaven. Well, then the prophets began to pick this up. And if you were here last week, you know, we talked quite extensively about the prophets and how they began to talk about the prophet. Well, they not only talked about the prophet, about the one who would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but they also began to talk about the king, the king who would come. It would be a different kind of king. As Jeremiah said in his 23rd chapter, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, of course, we know that's not David, but it's, a, it's going to be of the house and lineage of David. Is talking about Jesus Christ there. But All throughout the prophets, they begin to talk about a king who is coming. But of all the prophets, 
The one who I think best establishes the kingdom or explains the idea of the kingdom to us is Daniel. Daniel really opens up some of the concepts of what this kingdom is going to be about. Do you remember in the second chapter of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream and he called all of his wise men together and he said, I want you not only to tell me what the dream means, I want you to tell me what the dream was. I want you to tell me the content of the dream. And of course, they all panicked. But God gave that revelation to Daniel. And so he goes back, and this is what he tells Nebuchadnezzar. He says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. So what uh, Daniel saw and what Nebuchadnezzar saw was a great statue made of four different metals indicating four kingdoms that would exist over the next 600 years and dominate the power structure of the known world. Babylon, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. But then he said, I saw a mountain and a stone that was was cut out of a rock and that rock became a mighty mountain that covered the whole world and destroyed all the rest of these kingdoms. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. That's Daniel seeing the very kingdom that Jesus would come to establish, the one that we're talking about this morning. Probably the most beautiful, the most revealing story that he tells or vision that he tells is from his seventh chapter. Those of you who have been in our study of Acts on Wednesday night know that in Acts 1, when the disciples are on top of the Mount of Olives and they watch Jesus ascend to heaven on the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man disappears. Well, Daniel, I know this is flip-flopping it, Daniel picks up the narrative after Jesus disappears. And this is what we read in the seventh chapter. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That, brothers and sisters, is an Old Testament prophet somewhere around 530 B.C seeing the kingdom of heaven, seeing Jesus coronated as king of that kingdom. He goes on, and he, he, not only does he pinpoint where the, what the kingdom is going to be like, he actually tells us when it's going to be established, literally down to the year, and I'm not going to read it because it's quite complicated. And depending on which calendar you use and when you start, by one calendar and one start, literally, he's called his 70-week prophecy. The prophecy ends up with Jesus coming in about 28, 29 A.D., which is virtually the exact time that he stood in the Jordan River being, being baptized by John the Baptist. An amazing um, picture of when the kingdom is going to come. 
And so therefore, the prophets told us about this kingdom. So let's kind of fast forward a little bit to the time that Jesus was here and what he had to say about the kingdom. Jesus told us quite often that there was going to be a kingdom. In fact, how many times did you hear what we call the kingdom parables, where he would start it out by saying something like, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like. In fact, not only did Jesus come preaching, but John the Baptist came preaching, and Jesus taught his disciples to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, this was the message that the Father sent him to tell people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. So what do you think Jesus meant by that when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What does at hand mean? Does he mean that, well, it's something that's in the future, it hasn't come yet, uh, it will come one day, maybe way off at the end of time? Does he mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand the moment that God entered space and time at the incarnation? Or does he mean that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and began his ministry and worked his mighty deeds, that's when the kingdom of heaven appeared on earth? Or does he mean that when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, that that's when the kingdom of heaven was established? Or does he mean that when he ascended and was coronated in heaven, as we read in Daniel, that's when the kingdom of heaven was established? Or does he mean that when the Holy Spirit comes at power in Pentecost and the New Testament church is empowered and enabled, that that's when the kingdom of heaven was established? Well, the answer to that is yes. Okay? All those things. It's a, it's a futile exercise to try and pinpoint exactly when the kingdom of heaven was established on earth. So the best way to, 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 to look at it is just that it came when Jesus came. It was the first advent of Jesus. From the time he entered space and time in the, in the incarnation. To the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The second, the other paraclete. That's the advent. The first advent. The first coming of the kingdom of heaven. But what is important is not when it came. But the fact that it did come. That with Jesus, the kingdom of heaven was established on earth. So now you've got this strange situation of a kingdom that is in heaven and on earth at the same time. And we want to draw some comparisons there. Far more important than when the kingdom of heaven came is the nature of the kingdom that came. Now, I want you to pay attention to me and don't lose me here, okay? Because you're going to ask yourself a question. What on earth does the burning bush have to do with the kingdom of heaven? And if you don't listen, you're going to miss it. Because we started this entire series, I don't know if you remember it, with the burning bush. We're going to end it with the burning bush. Because the burning bush tells us something vital about the kingdom of heaven that we need to understand. If you remember, Moses is in the desert uh, near Mount Horeb, and he sees a bush that is burning, but it doesn't burn up. This is what we read. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses comes upon a theophany, a, a manifestation of God. And we talked about that theophany being both an example 
example of the transcendence of God and the imminence of God at the same time. It was imminent because God had come down to talk to Moses to deliver his people. But it was transcendent in the sense that the bush was on fire, consumed with fire, but the bush didn't burn up. And a very important principle we established, that fire under a normal situation will feed off of whatever it's burning. It will gain its strength and its heat and its combustible material out of whatever is burning. And when it is through burning, when it has turned that into a piece of soot and there's nothing else to burn, the fire goes out because the fire depends on the bush for its, its sustenance. But this bush didn't burn up. The reason being that God didn't need the bush to be the fire. God is self-existent. And so therefore, he is transcendent, not depending upon his creation for the existence. And we, we, we coined, we actually didn't coin it right out of John, but we applied it here, a very important phrase about the fire. The fire was in the bush, but it was not of the bush. It was in the bush. I mean, it was burning like crazy, but it wasn't of the bush. It didn't depend on the bush for its existence. Well, the kingdom of heaven is exactly the same way. The kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters, is in the world, but it is not of the world. It did not originate in this world. So there's two things that we want to see when we determine the nature of this kingdom. It is not of this world, but it is in the world. First of all, the kingdom of heaven is not of this world. It did not originate here. It wasn't the creation of humanity. It wasn't the extension of our own thoughts and our own minds. The kingdom of heaven is exactly what it says. It is the kingdom of heaven. It is God's kingdom. It is a holy kingdom. It doesn't originate here. It doesn't reflect this earth. It reflects the place that it comes from and that is established, which is the holiness of God in heaven. Jesus put it this way when he was praying his high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of John. He says, I have given them your word, talking about his disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And Jesus made a very important distinction there. The world, and I'll remind you of the way that John used that word at that part of his gospel. Not just the planet upon which we live. Not even just the mass of fallen humanity. But a world that is in open rebellion against God. At enmity with God. Hating God. Despising him. Hating his son because he's the Messiah. And there Therefore, hating the kingdom that he established. That world pits itself against God in open rebellion. And Jesus says, these disciples now, and of course later on he's going to say, all those who come to know me through them. So he's talking about the church. He's talking about us. They're no longer of this world. They don't belong here. Their citizenship has changed. It is not in this world. It is of heaven. 
He said to Pilate, when Pilate said, are you a king? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, things would be different. But my kingdom is a kingdom that is not even present in this world. When Jesus taught us how to pray, we we recited it just a few minutes ago. In the Lord's Prayer, so-called, we started out by saying, Our Father who art where? In heaven. Hallowed be. Holy be. Set apart be. Transcendent be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he draws a distinction between the two places that the kingdom of heaven is. Now the kingdom of heaven is established in earth, but it's not like the kingdom that is in heaven because in heaven there is no one left after Satan is thrown out. There is no one left who disobeys, who hates God and who works against him. It is a kingdom of absolute obedience and love and compassion between the king and all of his subjects. And so therefore, it's different than the kingdom that is here because here people hate the kingdom because it is a sewer and the kingdom has been placed right in the middle of that sewer. But it is not of the sewer. It is of heaven. Now what makes this so interesting is that the kingdom of heaven is not of the world, but it is in the world. Jesus came down and, and he makes these disciples, we're going to talk later about the huge, the beautiful metaphor of the bridegroom and the bride. And, and, and he cleanses and prepares and makes this disciples, this church, his bride, and then he leaves them in the sewer. <laughs> you know, he, he leaves them down there. So the kingdom is not, it's not of the world, but it's in the world. Jesus said this, continuing on and what he said in that high priestly prayer. Talking to his father, he says, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. But then he goes on to say, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, I'm leaving them here. Now, I'm leaving my kingdom. I'm bringing the kingdom and I'm establishing it here. A little beachhead, just 11 men when I leave and and some disciples that 120 at Pentecost. I'm leaving them here in the in, in the sewer, if you will. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because this is where the work is, folks. This is where the kingdom needs to be. Because this world is filled with people who don't belong here. This world is filled with people who think they're nice sewer rats, think they're wolves. They think they can run with the wolves. Very nice. I used to be one of them. I know that many of you used to be one of them consciously. You think you're very worldly and you're doing just fine, but you do not recognize or realize that your citizenship is actually in heaven. And so God has left us here. He has left his kingdom here with a purpose, with a a plan. And that is to get out and find and rescue those who don't belong here. Those that the Lord is going to draw out of darkness into his marvelous light. To tell them about Jesus. To share the gospel of the kingdom with them. And so that every single last one that is one of the sheep of Jesus Christ will end up in the flock. That's what he said when he sat on the side of the the Mount of Olives just a few nights before he was crucified. And he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be declared throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When the last sheep is in the fold, that's when 
the eschatological, that just means end of time, that just means the complete, the, the final uh, uh, version of all this, that's when the eschatological kingdom of heaven will come. So let's turn our attention to that, because that's what Jesus predicted, and of course all the New Testament talks about thy kingdom come. One of the most beautiful metaphors, I think, in Scripture that discusses the kingdom of heaven and what it's like and our relationship it is the, the, the metaphor of the bridegroom and the bride. And once again, you may say, well, what does the bridegroom and a bride have to do with the kingdom? Well, if you remember back when I explained to you the relationship in a real kingdom, the perfect kingdom, the kind of kingdom that is the best place for human beings to live in, it was that there was a love relationship between the king and his subjects, that the king cared more about his subjects than he cared about himself, and the subjects were obedient and subservient to that king. Well, that perfectly reflects the pre-fall version of marriage that God gives us back into the garden. And all through scripture, when we talk about the perfect relationship between Christ and his church, it talks about it as a marriage. Jesus himself talked about himself as the bridegroom when he said, Can the wedding feast, uh, I'm sorry, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Paul talked about, when he was talking about the relationship between husband and wives, he compared it to the relationship between Jesus and the church. And Jesus came to prepare the church so that he could take them home or take her home, take the church home. This is what he says in the fifth chapter. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. But the most beautiful passages that we get along this line are indeed from the book of Revelation. This is what we read in the 19th chapter. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We'll talk about those robes in a moment. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This perfect relationship between a sovereign king and his subjects. Later on in Revelation, we read, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Later, the angel will say to John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And this is the relationship that you have. This is the relationship. And this is why it is so important that we remember that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven and not a kingdom that we cooked up. When the kingdom of heaven, even though it is on earth, it is still a kingdom of holiness. We are to be holy as our father in heaven is holy because we are his so that Christ can present us with his perfect righteousness as we stand before him as that beautiful picture of the, um, uh, of the bridegroom and the bride. 
I don't have time this morning to go into all of the different metaphors that are used, but another way that Jesus used this particular metaphor of the bridegroom and the bride was to, to try to impress upon us brothers and sisters that this is a must-attend event. This is not an option, folks. To be part of that wedding feast, to be the bride of Christ, makes all the difference in the world. He told a story about ten maidens. You know this one. For five of them were wise and had prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And five of them were not wise and were unprepared. Five of them went into the wedding feast with the bridegroom and the bride. And the other five were left outside. When they came and knocked on the door, brothers and sisters, they heard something that none of us ever want to hear. The bridegroom says, I don't know you. I don't know you. And so you remain outside. Jesus also told another parable about a king who had a wedding feast and he invited all the nobles and all the high mucky mucks, you know, to the feast and they all refused and they all said, I've got other things to do. And of course, the king dealt harshly with them. But then he actually went ahead and gave the feast anyway, inviting all the lame and the infirm and the the people who are in the streets. And he invited them in to fill his hall. And as they came, came in, as was the custom in those days, he provided them with wedding clothes. And there they all are in those white robes we're going to talk about in a moment. Those wedding clothes. And all of a sudden we find a man who snuck in somehow and doesn't have those robes on. And he is thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, you don't want to be on the outside of this one. You don't want to be outside of this feast. And in order to be in that in the first place, in order to be where we're about to talk about being, which is in that ultimate innumerable throng, you have to be dressed in the right robes. And it's not a robe of your own righteousness. It is nothing you can do. It is the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness. And that's the way... That we end up in that glorious kingdom. I forgot to tell you at the front end. This is another one of those sermons where we do our exposition at the end of the sermon. Um, So don't worry when we just now are getting to our text. That is a very long introduction. But it's not going to start, you know, um, another 30 or 45 minutes of, of sermon. But I do want you to turn to our text because that's our ultimate destination. Now you see how we're getting there. Now you see God's plan of redemption all the way through all human history. And now we want to take a look at the eschatological kingdom of heaven, our destination, if you know Christ, the only destination that is worth aspiring to in this life. And that is to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9. Let's just take that first. first. After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. 
Now, before we take that apart, I want to jump to the 15th chapter, the second verse. So just listen as I read this to you, because there's one other aspect. It's another view of the same scene. We have another view in the fourth chapter of John, I mean, of, of Revelation. But here's what he says in the 15th. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, sea of glass that is before the throne of God, mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. That's what I wanted to pick up. The harps of God in their hands. Now let's go back to the seventh and let's take a look at what he says. First of all, notice that he says there was a great multitude there that no one could number. Now he's already talked about the angels, myriad upon myriad. He's already talked about the dais upon which is the throne of God and the four amazing creatures that are surrounding him and the 12 elders that are around that are 24 elders, the ones that are around the throne. And now he talks about the people and he says, they're innumerable. You can't count them. Brothers and sisters, these are the stars that God took Abraham out and says, these are your descendants. Like the stars of the sky are the sands of the sea. This is the purpose. This was the plan from the very beginning that all of these people, both Old Testament and New Testament, would stand in the presence of a holy God and be able to worship him like this, the innumerable throng. Then he says that there were from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That is a fourfold designation that John uses over and over again throughout this whole book of Revelation. And every time it seems like he switches them up. And basically what he's saying is that throng, that kingdom is multicultural, it's multi-ethnic, it's multinational, it's multiracial. It is multilingual. It is multi-everything. There is no individual type of people who are in that particular kingdom. There is a oneness. There is a unity. There is a bond. And all of the distinction that human beings use to divide themselves apart from each other have all vanished because you have one people, one beautiful united voice praising God and worshiping Him. And brothers and sisters, that's the way it is in heaven and that's the way it should be here. There is no place in God's kingdom or in His church for any distinctions based on externals. We are one in Christ. We are bound together and that is our destination. Stronger because of our differences. Well, anyway, he goes on to say, standing before the throne... And before the Lamb. Okay, I just want you to see that. Where are these people? They're standing before the throne of God. In a place that the children of Israel at Mount Horeb couldn't even touch the base of the mountain because it was so holy. And God was protected in a dark cloud. And all they could hear was the rumbling and the fire and the thunder and the lightning. No one can be in the presence of God. But now, look what's happened. They are back in the presence of the throne of God. Only, only a holy God can redeem that which is unholy and make it holy again. So that it can stand in the presence of God. How did that happen? How is that possible? The lamb's there, folks. The lamb who looks like he'd been slain. Jesus Christ is the reason. And look what he says. He says that we are clothed in white robes. 
Well, white robes, that's not our own righteousness. We cannot make ourselves holy and righteous enough to stand in the presence of God. That is the alien righteousness of Christ. That is Jesus who has given us his righteousness after forgiving our sins and placing us on high. He has given us clothes of righteousness, of perfect righteousness, so that we can stand in the presence of God. That whole throng has palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were used for celebration for the Hebrews. You may remember that it was part of their feast days. And of course, it's a throwback to the triumphal entry where Jesus came and he enters the the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the the, the prince of peace symbolically taking his kingdom. And what did they do? They put palm branches down in his way. We call it Palm Sunday because of a celebration. Now, of course, they're going to kill Jesus before the week is out, but they don't have any clue what his kingdom is like, that his kingdom is not of this world. And so we have palm branches in our hands to celebrate the salvation, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to celebrate his ascension and coronation and the fact that we are in his presence forever. But then we also have these gold harps of God. What's a gold harp of God? Where did they come from? What does it mean to hold a harp of God? Well, I'm going to come back to this in a little while because that's the sort of surprise finish. But we have these harps. You know what the people are doing? They're praising. They're singing. They're worshiping. They're in the very presence of God. And they are worshiping and giving him all the glory that is. And that's what we read in the rest of our text. That's what sets it up. This is a view of worship. This is the destination. This is the purpose. This is where we're headed to worship God and give him the glory. As we read in the rest of our verses and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you can imagine it. That's your purpose. That was God's providential plan from the time that he made a covenant with Abraham. That you would be, if you know Jesus Christ and if you have given your life to him, if you are truly saved and regenerated, that is your destination to stand before the God of all creation in his presence and worship him and give him the glory. This, I believe, is what Jesus was talking about when he sat at the well with that woman from Samaria And they were talking about these things. And Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. No traditions. No man-made or human-made things that we interject into our worship. Pure, raw worship of the being of the great I am in his presence forever. What a glorious sight. And the fact that we were created for, to worship God, to glorify him. 
and to enjoy him forever. But there's a problem. There's a surprise finish to this that maybe you didn't expect. I can't remember whether it was R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur who in their commentaries told this story, but they told a story about a friend that they knew who rejected God for this very reason. Said, I can't believe in God. Because I can't believe in a God who would make me for such a selfish purpose. That I would be made just so I could worship him. That I could be made just so I could bring him glory. That that's my only purpose for being, that a God would make me for that reason. I can't believe in that kind of God. And so he rejected God. Actually, that's really kind of a silly argument because the God, what goes for God doesn't go for fallen humans. But it does bring up a real serious question. Have I been misleading you throughout this entire series? Have I been telling you something about God that is not true? Because you can draw the conclusion from this, and the way I've said it, and the way it has been expressed, you can draw the conclusion that God made us because he needed us to give him glory. That God made us so that because he needed us to worship him. Now, what we have been learning all along is that if God is transcendent, he doesn't need us. He didn't make us for a purpose that he needed. So therefore, there must be another reason. I mean, let's go back to the burning bush. That's where we're going to end. The burning bush doesn't burn the bush up because God doesn't need the bush so, but to have fire. God doesn't need us for glory, folks. He doesn't need us to worship him. There is so much glory between the three members of the Godhead. He doesn't need us at all. And yet he made us his worshipers. Why? What does that mean? Why did God make us the way that he made us? Well, I think Jesus tells us, again, in his high priestly prayer, in three of the most stunning verses. I know I said that about Revelations, but these two, I mean, it's all stunning. But three of the most stunning verses that you're going to read. And this is what Jesus says. The glory that you have given me. He's talking to his father. He said, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Do you realize what Jesus is saying there? That he has given his disciples and through his disciples a glory that they didn't have. So that they might be one just as the Holy Trinity is one. He goes on and he says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. There's something missing, brothers and sisters. There's something that Jesus has to give us as his people. He goes on and says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. We reach a conclusion, and I think it could be a surprise conclusion. God didn't make us because he needed us to worship him. He didn't make us because he needed the glory that we would give him. To worship God and to glorify him is for our benefit entirely. Start to finish. All the way through. It is for us that God made us as worshipers. It is for us that God made us 
to glorify him. I'm going to give you one last principle in this part of this of this series. The act of worship, please listen to this. The act of worship and glorifying God is the highest expression of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Let me repeat that. The act of worship and glorifying God is the highest expression of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them in his image. And just like that image you saw in Revelation, they were in the presence of God because they were holy. But when they fell, it was like a component was removed from them. Now, we all know something about ourselves. We know that we have an innate need to worship. That we have a desperate need to worship. And so we fill that hole. Sometimes you call it a God-shaped hole, but it really isn't. It's a worship-shaped hole. And we need to give glory to our Creator. We need to know Him and be known by Him. And if we can't, we go looking for Him in all the wrong places, in idols and all the different things of this world. Because there's an ache in our heart and a need to worship God. So what does God do? What did Jesus do? He gave his glory to his disciples. He replaced the desire to worship and the ability to worship in your heart. He makes you whole again. He makes you complete the way you were made to be. You were made to worship God. And you will worship him for an eternity. That's the reason he made you to worship. That's the reason you give him glory. Because it's the highest expression of humanity. That you can possibly have. Oh my goodness. I want to leave you with this. And before I read this to you. It's also from the 19th chapter. I just want you to know. If you don't know this part of scripture. That the prostitute that is being talked about. Is not a real person. They're not talking about burning up a person. And then celebrating because of the smoke. The prostitute is the whore of Babylon. The prostitute are the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of the sewer. The kingdoms that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with. And this is what we read of the celebration of those who have been restored to the ability to worship and give God the glory. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There's nothing that I can add to that, brothers and sisters, except this. Make sure you're ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. What an extravagant plan. 
who deserves such a love? Who deserves such a plan? Who deserves such a salvation as this, such a redemption? Certainly not me, no one that is here. But out of your great love and mercy, you orchestrated this. From Genesis 3.15 on, this was your providential plan. And we look forward to, dear Lord, and even as we think of those who have gone before us, we think about our dear sister, Nancy, who just went this week. What glory she is in. It's beyond us to even think about. Thank you, Lord, for the assurances that you give us. Our hearts go out to all those who would look at this and listen to this and reject it. How is it possible to reject such a salvation as this? We give you the glory now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.